Good morning, Robert. Good morning, and welcome to On the Path Podcast. Obviously, this is Robert Jimenez, and I'm here with the dude. Harden, yeah. The dude of theology, Michael hey. Harden. <laughs> How are you, man? Good, good. How are you, man? Hot. It is uh, July, and uh, it is hot. Yeah. It is. It is very. It's. Uh, I'm out here in Henderson, Nevada, so we're having some monsoon <clears throat> weather. But it's. We've been in the. Uh, 105 to 110 lately so it's been really hot out here yeah i i remember vegas in the summertime it's killer was it wasn't that there with you toward the summertime yeah 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 it was warm it was definitely yeah very pleasant i think at the time you were here (laughs) man crazy so i've I've been uh, i've been building a bar at home oh i'm not physically building one but uh, collecting everything for it and uh, i've been practicing mixology Okay. You know, so that's where you're you're making everything measured with you know, uh, right? Twenty different things and two two eyedrop. You got an eyedropper, two drops of this, and you know, a qu- quarter teaspoon of that, and this and that and the other. It's been really fun. Oh, yeah. I've been uh, since we started this podcast. I've been teching out with technology. You know, I bought a microphone. Woo! I bought a uh, this uh, lever that I can collapse tight here i was trying to find the best place to record because in the i was going to record in our kitchen yeah on the on the island there with the stools but the, i got high ceilings and i felt like it was echoing right and so uh, i'm actually in our guest room where we have a small desk so and i'm doing all this through my ipad through some connections that i bought uh it seems to be working really really well nice i'm sitting in the bahamas on the beach nah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It won't be that long before that's where I'll be doing this podcast someday, buddy. buddy yeah. You, as soon as they let us out of the country again, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. Hey, so talking about uh, trying to get out of the country, so this coronavirus, so what, have you been getting messages that people don't believe it's real, or what's happening with all that? Yeah. There's a, it's, it's, it's the strangest thing, I have to tell you. Um, you know, I'm, I'll go ahead and get political here. I don't mind. It's our podcast. Yeah, sure. But, um, I have uh, put some Facebook posts up, as you know, about uh, Mary Trump's book, which I thought was quite excellent. Too much and never enough. Right. And I would encourage everyone to read it. First of all, it's just a great read. She's a fantastic writer. I mean, she's really, it's a gripping book. And it's right. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. uh, but one of the things I observed was that Fred Trump Sr., Donald Trump's father, uh, the guy was emotionally unavailable. Uh, he He's 14, 16 hour days, you know, never sees his wife. Uh, she gets sick and he walks in and he says, how's everything? Great, toots. He doesn't wait for an answer. How are you doing? Great, toots, you know. And I, I was just thinking about Trump's reaction to the coronavirus. It'll pass. It'll pass. It'll pass. That's how Fred Sr. handled trauma in his family system. It'll right. pass. It'll pass. Right. And so my concern here, of course, is that what we're dealing with is a um, psychological creation in Donald Trump that is unable to do anything but believe that his version of things, his narrative, his perspective is the only perspective. And he's lived his entire adult that way, life that way. But here's the problem. He's managed to convince a chunk of his audience on some conspiracy theory about the deep state, on some conspiracy theory about the media is out to get him. I mean, let's face it, you know, every president presidential election, I mean, if you go to Fox News during the Obama years, you don't hear Obama whining and complaining, you know, about Fox right. News. But boy, you know, it's just, so Trump has turned this into a, a meta-narrative that's actually a mythic proportion now because 
he's he's gone into what we what we call manichaeism total dualism black and white if you you know if you elect biden if you do this if you do that why you're just going to the devil right the real problem right now in this country is it's become a religious war now now it's, it's fascinating to me that we couch it in cultural terms, but it's fundamentally a religious war because we see the toppling of statues, quote, idols, unquote. Uh, we see so many things that are related to theological, religious type issues, but the news doesn't seem to be paying much attention to any of this. So I just find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, just in case our listeners, I mean, as you know, um, I did catch the coronavirus and I was yeah. sick so bad, man. It I was mean, a hoax. You caught a hoax, man. It was a hoax. Yeah, I made it, it up so I didn't have to, so I could stay away from work for like four weeks and get paid. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, I mean, I, you know, you talk about body aches. I wouldn't even call it body aches. I'd call it body pain. I was in so much pain physically, mm. you know, running 102 fever. And this lasted about five days, roughly. And I was so tired. I was sleeping. I'd sleep like 10, 12 hours at night wake up, I'd be up for four hours and I'd fall asleep for another four. I just couldn't stay awake. It was just something. But after about five days, I didn't start it. I started to, I could tell I was starting to recover. I did end up uh, getting acute bronchitis because oh. of it. But a uh, doctor prescribed me some medication, an inhaler and some form of steroids of some sorts. And uh, oh. that fixed, that fixed me up really quick. So I would say about after two weeks for me personally, cause it seems to attack everybody a little bit, quite a bit differently. Uh, but I, I I was fine after two weeks. I mean, I feel pretty much normal now at this point. It's been about four weeks now, or I'm on my fifth week, I guess. But yeah, man, it's uh, it's real and uh, took its, its toll, and it's no fun. No, I I don't want it. That's why we've been quarantined for since February 28th, March 1st, somewhere right in there. And we I go out I go out to get this or that or the other. You know, mask up, glove up, sanitize up. I say, you know, 600 feet from people. No, right, right. Hey, uh, so um, you got a new book out, Knowing God, Consumer book, yeah. Christianity, and the Gospel of Jesus. You want to talk a little bit, a Did minute or two about it? it? Did you get yeah. to read it? I, cool. I have not read it. I, oh. I did buy it, though. I have all your books. All right. Uh, I have them all on Kindle, except for uh, your previous book. Which one? The mimetic one you wrote on the little small right, one. Right, right. That one I got in print. Okay, okay. I do need a. Do you still have copies of the Jesus Driven Life on print? Oh, oh sure. Okay, I gotta get with you so I could get one off of you. Well, you can order it off Amazon, Robert. Okay, it's yeah, still available. Okay, cool, cool. Oh, yeah, all my books are available. Okay, I wasn't sure. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to ask you: is are, are your books still available on print or just Kindle? Uh, print and Kindle both. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So, what's this book about? Give us a, a two-minute blurb. This book is essentially an indictment of American Protestant Christianity in the same tradition as Kierkegaard's Training in Christianity, Bonhoeffer's Discipleship, or perhaps even Bart's Epistle to the Romans. What I, what I did in that book was, uh, several, well, there's several things that are occurring. One is, uh, I wrote it very simply. I tried to reach, you know, a teenage level in that book. I don't know right. if I but people seem to be appreciating that level of writing. But in the book, I um, look at American Christianity, Protestant Christianity, only Protestant Christianity, and basically see all the variations within it as the same thing with slightly different emphases in different places. 
In other words, it's like a shopping mall where you can get, you know, clothes here, clothes there, clothes, you know, this year, that there, you know, all kinds of, there's all kinds of stores and you get all kinds of things, but you're basically buying the same merchandise. Right. So that's my, my argument is that American Protestant Christianity is a little more than a shopping mall and Christianity in America is a little bit more than consumerism. And then the second thing I did was I made a theological move in the second part of the book. Instead of beginning with incarnation, which is the typical Christian fashion, both East and West, because we all follow the Nicene Creed, I started with crucifixion where Paul does. And I asked myself, if I start with crucifixion, where, where do I get incarnation? Where do I do that? So I ended up doing crucifixion, resurrection, incarnation, and then tying together uh, at the very end the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, pneumatology, um, the pattern of following Jesus or discipleship all together. And, and then, of course, the doctrine of the incarnation all together in one at the end. So incarnation for me has to do fundamentally with Jesus continuing incarnate existence within his followers. And right. that's what I tried to make that theological move. And I don't know that it's been made before that way. So we'll see if it plays. Right, right, right. Well, the book's available on Amazon. Uh, knowing God, Consumer Christianity, and the Gospel of Jesus, do recommend you guys uh, get out there and get it. Uh, talking about books and some of your influence on me, I did get a set of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's books. Uh, it's called the Reader's Edition, not because it's been dumbed down or anything or summarized, but because it's in a really nice reader's format. Nice. Unfortunately, they're only available in paperback, but it includes discipleship ethics, letters and papers from prison and life together. Nice. And that, part of... Good why I'm not reading your book is because I'm digging through uh, <laughs> Doug, Doug Campbell's book, Pauline Dogmatics, and I'm about well, 200 pages deep into that one. So, Good on you. That's a much better, more important book. <laughs> so really? what's happening uh, with uh, religion in the news? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. They, um, as you know, John Lewis died, the great, great yes, uh, yes. African-American civil rights uh, congressman. But also C.T. Vivian died. And C.T. Hmm. Vivian was, uh, a, he was 95. He was also a comrade of Dr. King back in the day. Okay. And I had the, the honor of um, spending a weekend, actually two, with C.T. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Um, just, you know, there's, um, when you're a white guy, you know, um, you, you can't begin to appreciate what it's like to live inside the skin of people that are harassed or, or um, repressed or uh, marginalized, you know, you can't. Right. So what do you do? You listen to stories. And I just sat and listened a lot to CT tell stories about the civil rights movement time. And, you know, and, and I, of course, asked him about Dr. King and things. And like I would ask Bonhoeffer's pupils about Bonhoeffer and, uh, I just want to honor both uh, John Lewis, Rep Representative John Lewis, as well as uh, Dr. C.T. Vivian. He got his honorary doctorate from my alma mater, North Park Seminary uh, in wow. college. Yeah. And uh, so it was, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a week where I think, you know, you when you start losing mentors, yeah, people, people that guide, uh, then that kind of puts the burden of responsibility on the next generation and starts falling on our shoulders and on other people's shoulders as well. And I just, I'm curious to see the leadership that comes out of this in the next decade in America. 
Right. I'm curious to see if we end up with extremism everywhere or if we've actually got some seriously rational people <laughs> that are going to run for office. Right. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah I'm with you on that. Man. Around the country, all I can think to myself is, dear God, are these people serious? So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely uh, some interesting times. I mean, I'm uh, I'm in my early 50s right now and certainly lived through some really trying times. But uh, this seems different this time around, and I'm not sure why. It just really feels different, you know? Well, we do have the rise of populism for the last uh, five or six years now. We've seen, of course, in Poland, you have Bolonasaro in um, Brazil, Putin. I mean, all the strongmen, the populist type things that are that are going on in, in democracies and, you know, Erdogan in uh, Turkey and other places, Boris Johnson, you know, I mean, we're seeing the move and it's fine. It's a historical move. You can see it throughout history. The pendulum swings between the liberal and the conservative. Sure. Group. Sure. But right now, the problem is we have a global financial collapse. We have a pandemic and we've got serious inequality in the world. And I'm not sure we're going to be able to just squeeze by all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely the the rise of the internet has helped to uh, just push people's views uh, more strongly, you know, and then, you know, voices you may have not heard of before, you know, are a bit louder because of the internet. And I think that's, you know, the internet has really changed our worlds in many, many ways, you know. Well, what it's done is it's dumbed us down and made us stupid. (laughs) Well, it is, it is. The internet goes to the lowest common denominator. It is, it's like water, it seeks the lowest level. And yeah, so you see that in the discourse, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've said it before. I don't really engage in much uh, social media interactions because I just feel you get nowhere with it. But you know, interestingly enough, at least as far as theology, you know, I think that uh, at least my perception is that uh, the internet really has opened the doors to more theological discourse, or at least more theological awareness. I mean, because I think prior, I would let me say it this way: prior to the internet. I think that the Calvinistic point of view had its grips firmly in America. And it doesn't seem that way anymore. You're able to research things. You're able to find other, you know, this is true. And yes, you can see that you, but yeah, you saw the breakdown of this occur first in the Academy with atonement theory in the nineties and early 2000s, that there was like a 20 year stretch there where it seemed everybody and their brother was writing a book on atonement theory. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems that it takes a while, too, but I think the Internet is making things a little faster. I mean, so how long has uh, Karl Barth been dead now? 68 to today is what? 68, uh, so 50 40, years, 50 roughly. Years? Yeah, yeah, so uh, and even in America, he's not widely read, you know. And, no. You know, it's going to no. take, you know, probably more. I think more people will, as you know, because of you and, you know, many others, the theologians out there pushing it more. Uh, especially like Douglas Campbell, you know, a lot of his foundation seems to be uh, building off of what Karl Barth did, you know, so it seems, uh, it, it seems that Karl Barth may have a, a, a yet a stronger influence in America, hopefully in the next 50 years, you know. Well, those of us that know Barth are well aware that the American religious scene is still pre-Barthian, even though America seemed to dismiss Bart in the 1970s, uh, he was already considered passe, you know, and right. uh, in Yale and Harvard and Claremont School of Theology, U of University of Chicago, all these so-called Ivy League schools. 
uh, you know, oh yes, oh yes, Karl Barth. Yes, we've, we've read Karl Barth, we've dismissed him. Um, we have not been through Karl Barth's school. And right. um, either the liberal tradition, uh, which I'm currently critiquing, or the evangelical tradition, which I've spent my life critiquing. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to learn to listen to Bart. We have to really understand exactly what a prof theological prophet he truly was. And one of the ways to do that is to look at his early writings. And so I want to read a letter that comes from September the 27th of 1917. Okay. So we're toward the end of World War I. Bart has begun the, uh, the incredible task of uh, essentially abandoning all theological knowledge that he ever knew. And he started with the Greek text and he's begun to retranslate Romans into German. And he writes to his best friend and lifelong comrade, Edward Ternison, and he says, I lived the whole week in strict seclusion in my study and under the apple tree and now have the exegesis of Romans 5 finished. How many may there have been before me who, after a heated struggle with all these puzzling words, have thought the task was finished until they, that is the words, look at the next exegete just as mysteriously. During the work, it was often as though I were being looked at by something afar from Asia Minor or Corinth, something very ancient, early oriental, indefinably sunny, wild, original and that somehow is hidden behind these sentences and is so ready to let itself be drawn forth by ever new generations. Paul, what a man he must have been, and what men also, for whom he could so sketch and hint at these pithy things in a few muddled fragments. I shudder often in the company. And he says, the reformers, even Luther, are far from the stature of Paul. Only now has it become convincingly clear to me. And then behind Paul, what realities there must have been that could set this man in motion in such a way. And what he's doing is he's talking here about Paul's being absolutely encountered by the living God. Right. Part, part of the, the reality was he's, he's in this liberal tradition that, that, basically has relegated God to the fringe of history or perhaps in some Hegelian manner, bringing it all thing, bringing it together in this dialectical fashion. Um, but he's also he's not saying what the, the pietists, well, not so much the pietists, but certainly the conservatives wanted to say in terms of, you know, God, Paul's encountered God. Well, you know, charismatic today is going to go, yeah, I've encountered God. No, you've encountered a God in your head, maybe. You know, right, right. The person that encounters God never says, oh, yeah, I, I've met Jesus. No, you meet Jesus, you're knocked off your horse. You encounter God, you're blinded by the light. I mean, Christians are blithe about this. They take every little teeny religious experience they have and they turn it into God. So Bart has an alternative way of doing this. And he says, behold, I make all things new. And if we were only aware how little that possibility is manifested in our conventional and self-reliant lives, we should surely, assuredly take the utterance upon our lips only, only with the greatest shame, confusion, and restraint. The only way to name the theme of the Bible, which is the Easter message, is to show it, to live it, and to have it. 
the Easter message becomes truth, movement, reality, as it is expressed. Let us be satisfied with all biblical questions, insights, and vistas focus upon this common theme. But let us not for a moment conceal from ourselves the fact that obedience to this vision our acceptance into what the Bible proposes is a step into space, an undertaking of unknown consequence, a venture into eternity. Better first to stop and count the cost than leap too short. Better to hear everywhere only the no than to hear an unreal, unconfirmed, merely negative yes. And I think this is this. Um, and it picks up on the letter there. This is from a lecture called Biblical Insights. Uh, questions, insights, and vistas that Bart gave, I believe it was in 1920, if I'm not mistaken, 1918. Yeah, 1920. Yeah, April 20. But it says the same thing. It says we have this tendency to create God in our image, to just think that, that when we're thinking theological thoughts, they're coming from God. When we're, you know, having prayer, we think that we're praying to God. And Bart's just trying to disabuse Christians of this. I remember once a Mennonite mission committee said to me, um, do you have a mission statement? I said, yeah, I'm trying to convert Christians to Jesus. <laughs> you know, So one of the ways that we can do this is using Bart's epistle to the Romans. When Bart deals with the law in the epistle to the Romans, he has translated it, and I put that in air quotes, into modern religion. So hmm. when, when, when Paul says, are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to men that know the law. Bart's going to take the law as religion, and he's going to exegete it this way. So I'm going to read a, 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 about a two-minute text, sure. but I want you to get also a feel for this early Bart, this Bart that is is uh, brash. He is rough. He is um, powerful in these in this text. He says, and he's exegeting just the one little phrase, brethren, I speak to men that know the law, okay? Mm -hmm. so, and, and, of course, I choose this because I'm speaking to Christians. So here's what Bart writes. Okay. The possibility of religion is already familiar to Christians in Rome. To whom, indeed, can it be unfamiliar? Paul knows it. Men of every degree and of all classes actually make use of it. For above all the occurrences of human life, there hangs a smokescreen of religion, sometimes heavy, sometimes light. The memory of that lost relationship with God is everywhere retained. The unknown God is the God of both Jews and of Gentiles. And this memory most assuredly evokes actual and moral experience. Awe and love and the enthusiasm of people for that which is above them are the concrete and negative impressions of that union with God which is intangible and invisible. Nor must we divorce grace from the experience of grace which takes form and shape in religion, in morality, in dogma, and in ecclesiasticism. We hear, we believe, we obey, we confess, we express ourselves with some passion in speech or in print, with negative or positive emphasis. We dispose ourselves upon our appropriate shelf in the emporium of religion and ethics, ticketed and labeled with this or that philosophy in life, and we are what we are described to be upon our label. Of course, from time to time, we change our position, but that only suggests to those gifted with acute powers of observation the triviality of any particular position. It suggests, in fact, that a particular standpoint is no standing place. As people living in the world and being what we are, we cannot hope to escape the possibility of religion. 
for this attempt, for this reason, any attempt to occupy a position in the air denotes presumably a lack of prudence and circumspection on our part. We may move from one department to another, but we cannot escape from the store to wander away into the blue. And again, I picked that because my book has the metaphor of Christianity as a store. And so even though I write as one indicting Protestant American Christianity, I write as one within it. My, my burden is for this people, American Protestants. That's my burden. And like Bart had a burden for the German uh, and the Swiss, or the Reformed culture, essentially, in Europe. Um, so I have that burden. But for Bart, early on in Bart's career, what he's doing here is, he's, is World War I is winding down. What happened was, at the beginning of World War I in 1914, there was a declaration of German Kulturkampf, which means German... Uh, the German culture will overpower all other cultures because it's the best. You know, we have Mozart, okay. this, that, and the other. Right. And the German culture is superior, so we're going to go out and we're going to militarily take, you know, France and England and a few other places that we can because we're, we're the best. Well, what was, there were 93 German intellectuals that signed that declaration, including the great Adolf von Harnack. Hmm. Adolf von Harnack was the, uh, probably the, if not the finest church historian that's ever lived, certainly one of the top three. He taught Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth when they attended the University of Berlin. Uh, I have a lot of Harnack's work. I, I still, uh, I can remember the first time I read through his history of dogma, the big fat eight volumes. And oh, this it's like this guy knows everything. He's like Yaroslav Pelikan in a lot of ways. Pelikan, hmm. the new, the new uh, Harnack, von Harnack. But von Harnack had signed this as a good German Christian liberal. And you have to understand, von Harnack was a moral man. He was a moral man, a man of principle. And so for him to, for, 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 for Bart to see that his professor had signed this declaration of war, Bart said, I have to throw my, all my theology out of the water. And he did, and he started over. And that's when he takes the Greek text and he starts writing a translation of Romans like he's listening to it for the first time. Hmm. And that's really the, the way to work a text is to learn Greek and listen to listen to the text. Um, it, it, right. You know, but um, uh, Christians seem to think that they can figure everything out from their English versions in America because, after all, God inspired the King James. I mean. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I... Um... I'm familiar with the Greek alphabet. I can read. I recognize some words, but uh, most words I can't, you know, and the discipline uh, to learn it. I just haven't had it. It's not from laziness. It's just from life, you know, working, being well, yeah. what you do. <laughs> well, again, and, and you, you're good at what you do, you know. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I agree with you. I mean, one of my <clears throat> passions, and hopefully I can get it off my bucket list uh, before I leave this place, is actually to be able to read uh in Greek. And so I plug away a little a bit here and there. I don't, I need to just really try to commit, you know, hopefully I'll retire early and I can do it then. But uh, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, man. I mean, the, the more, you know, the original sources, the better. Well, unfortunately, uh, Greek and Hebrew are no longer mandatory to get a master of divinity, to become a pastor in 90% of your seminaries. Hebrew is not at all uh, required. 
Uh, Greek is only required if you're in a fundamentalist like Dallas Theological Seminary. Right. If you go anything slightly left of the right, I'm slightly, yeah, slightly to the left of the far right, and Greek's a, an elective. It's, uh, yeah, that makes uh, that makes no sense at all. Yeah. But then again, most seminaries are loaded up with programs, you know, youth programs, family programs, how to do this, how to this all. It's all oriented toward programming classes and classes and classes and programming. And I think seminary education is a waste of time for anybody right now. I just don't know of a decent seminary out there, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, there. I think you could find some online, you know, uh, you could, you know, a lot of the. Uh, the British schools, universities out there, you know, King's College and others, uh, yes. they, they, they have uh, online programs that are actually pretty decent. I was doing one with the University of Chester. I did about, I don't know, 30 units maybe. Uh, but Greek was heavy in that one. I, you know, I wasn't, I had to get to level two before I was going to start doing any Greek. Uh -huh. uh, but they definitely offer uh, Greek is mandatory in that. In that uh, and that's a bachelor's degree. It's, it's mandatory as part of the bachelor's degree. It's a, uh, it's, it's a degree in hermeneutics. Oh, I love uh, it. Oh, oh, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great program. Oh. Huh? I said it's a degree in hermeneutics. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, good, you know, I picked up a lot of good stuff in there. It was, it's been a while now, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a challenging class for sure, you know. I always have a Greek student. Uh, usually, I mean, there's, there's sometimes I don't, and I don't know how long I'll continue it, but I have a Greek student right now uh, in Tennessee. Okay. That's the best Greek student I think I've ever had. The nice. young man is, uh, yeah, uh, I just, he is really putting in the time. Yeah, we trained, we were, we had him translating the entirety of First John. We started in beginning of May and already here in July, he's finished, you know, we've done work in, in it and he's, he's finished First John already. We're going into the synoptics now. So. Yeah, I mean, I think in today's world, man, any subject you really want to learn, if you if you put the time in, you can do it. You can. You really. Yeah, can. yeah, yeah. I mean, I I studied uh, mechanical engineering when I was young, and um, I did drafting work for about five years. Mechanical drafting. We did uh, work for the. Uh, we were actually working on hydraulic systems for the uh, U.S. Uh, submarines. Huh. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And then I transitioned doing support of the CAD system to. Uh, they're not around no more, McDonnell Douglas. Um, but it, while I was there at McDonnell Douglas, I taught myself programming, you know. I mean, I was always really good at math, so the logic was always there. Yeah. Uh, but I taught myself programming, you know, reading books, being up till midnight, you know, just the way you do any other subject. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and then I, from there I transitioned to kind of a whole computer science and did a living at that for, I don't know, 20 years or so. Right. Up until recently when I just burned down, didn't want to do it anymore. Right. But I think that if people really, um, individuals commit, the resources are out there. The, the books are available. Yeah. Yes. The resources the, are definitely out there. Yeah. The lectures are out there. You know, there's yeah. no reason, you know, if you really want to dedicate the time, you can learn Greek, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. You can. You can. I, I would, you know, I would encourage uh, people to only do it if they're going to, if they intend to master it. There's just way too many. Yeah. Way, way, way too many people on the internet that are misusing Greek, uh, you know, doing the old etymological theory. The original meaning of this word is right. Oh, uh, you got it. You're <laughs> breaking my heart here. You're killing me with your bullshit, you know. It's like... Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's what that's the evangelical way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
What can we say? I, I have no further comment on that, sir. <laughs> All right. Any, anything else on Carl Barter? Is that well, what you what, have for well, us today? I, I think if I was to encourage people, they might say, where do I begin? You know, and I, I think I recommended last week his deliverance to the captives as well right. as his uh, evangelical theology. But again, there's, there's nothing like the early Bart to get one's blood really flowing. So if, if you wanted to, you know, have a good time, uh, you want to read those other two books to get a feel for it, but then jump into uh, the early Bart because it is powerful, powerful stuff. Right, right, right. You know, he will, he will, uh, it's not so much that he changes his mind, but he does go through certain theological uh, paradigm shifts. You know, and uh, that's that's fine. You, you know, 1932, it's, yeah, all good. Yeah, I've heard that, that uh, um, he did a revised edition of his Romans commentary, right? Well, he like has, yeah, he, the one I'm reading from you is actually the revised edition, the very right. first edition, which is the what Carl Adam called the bombshell in the theologian's playground. That one has never been translated into English. Okay, yeah, I heard Chris Tilling talking about it, but I think Chris does read German, so he well, may have I, been yeah. reading. Yes, I do, yeah. too, but it's very, yeah. it's the German in that book is really, whew. It's hard. I got yeah. it. It's just hard. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it is. It is what it is. It's it's Carl Bart. Well, we've done pretty good today, uh, staying on point. So oh, uh, good. if you are done with Bart, it's my turn. Yeah, to... it is your turn. Sir. Did I lose you, Robert? I think. Uh... You uh, muted yourself. You know, friends, I don't know if I'm being recorded or not, but I think Robert actually muted himself. So I'm going to continue on the assumption that we're recording until he unmutes himself or otherwise. With Karl Barth, what you're really getting is the most significant theological thinker since Athanasius or the Apostle Paul. Barth is able to see far more clearly the terrain that needs to be advanced upon in theology. It's as though... Uh, he has had an eagle eye view of the path across this theological wilderness he's to walk. And when he walks it, he's the most attentive to detail. Your church dogmatics, uh, I don't remember how many volumes, 14 volumes, contains thousands of various exegeses of Holy Scripture, as well as important thinkers. Bart is a master of Scripture. That doesn't mean that we're always going to agree with Karl Barth when he interprets texts. I have certainly learned to respectfully disagree with him and very, very carefully. Um, but for me, Barth is the man. So I will leave you with that. I'm not sure what happened to Robert on this particular podcast, but we'll sort that one out. And with that, I'm going to bid you adieu and a great day until we see you next week. Uh, on the path that we are all walking.